the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, was nearing his death. He knew it was coming. For many, that is the case as we approach the end of our lives. And so he had given himself the title Augustus, which means like best of the best or something. I don't know. Um, And in line with that thinking, he thought, what could I do as I approach my death that would be helpful? I know I will make a list of all my achievements and all the reasons why I am great. And I will decree that said list should be inscribed in various places around the city of Rome and indeed throughout the empire so that when you go to the temple to worship, you'll be reminded how August Caesar Augustus was. And when you go to the shop right in ancient Rome, you'll see the list of all the things that Caesar Augustus did. I am not making this up. This is absolutely true. We have found the inscriptions. Okay, we know they exist. He's about to die and he thinks, what should I do? I'm going to make a list of all the reasons I'm great. I'm going to help you Think about how awesome I am. Of course, that was consistent with his life, not only giving himself the name Augustus, but also anywhere the emperor went, anywhere Caesar Augustus went, before he arrived, like before he got to the the scene, the heralds would go before him. And you know what they had to say? When he arrived, they would yell out, You are worthy! You are worthy! This uh, antiphonal song of praise to the emperor You are worthy of what? (laughs) You're worthy to rule. You are worthy of our devotion. Later, emperor worship would be a thing. You are worthy of true, of actual religious worship. You are worthy to be our leader. You are are worthy to, to give us what we want, to protect the nation, to administer justice, to solve our problems, to provide riches and glory for us. You are worthy. You are worthy. He thought he was worthy. And he wouldn't let anyone forget it, even in death. Just so we're all clear, he was not worthy, right? He was just a man. But that didn't stop the cultural hype around him. It's not, so, it's not even that, it's that crazy that he would think to do that, because you catch me on the wrong day and I could get there, right? But, <laughs> um, but the deal was that everybody, they all bought it. And they said, let's, yeah, let's go with that. And frankly, things, you know, many... So much has changed in, in the last 2,000 years, um, but not that much has changed. Because in an election year, you know, what you're he- you'll, you know what you'll hear? He's worthy or she's worthy, right? There's almost a religious fervor in it, and the culture gets really excited, or parts of the culture, right? Or maybe it's movements. Climate change is worthy of your devotion, Weight loss is worthy of your devotion. The NCAA men's basketball tournament is worthy of your devotion. Maybe it's corporate hype. Apple is worthy. Amazon is worthy. Tesla, not so much. But (laughs) depends on your mood. To question a cultural god... When the culture is saying, he is worthy, she is worthy, you are worthy, right? To question that is exactly what we are called to do as Christians, but we just have to acknowledge it's cultural heresy, right? Because in ancient Rome, in the ancient Roman Empire, that's what was so weird about Christians. The weird thing about Christians wasn't that they worshipped Jesus. The weird thing about Christians was they only worshipped Jesus. That, that's what set them apart. And so, as we think about the circumstances of the Apostle John being given this vision in Revelation, he's given this vision for the benefit of of 
men and women who are seeking to follow Jesus in the midst of the Roman Empire, and what's causing the disconnect, what's making them stand out, indeed what's leading to, some, in some cases, persecution, is the fact that they were pushing back against the cultural hype narrative. They wouldn't say that the emperor was worthy. And if we're going to be those kinds of Christians, the, the kinds of Christians who stand apart from our culture when, when the time comes, the, the kinds of Christians who, when everybody else is worshiping whatever it is, who say, no, that's not worthy. If we're going to be those people, we have to be absolutely convinced of the superiority of Jesus. On what basis will we stand out in the culture? And the answer lies to us in the heavenly reality that is revealed to John in Revelation chapter 5. So just as a reminder, John has been given this revelation. First, he sees Jesus uh, actually appear before him there on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus gives him seven letters to the seven churches. Very practical instruction there from Jesus about standing out, about following him, about conquering temptation Right? And so all that exhortation is given. And then Jesus says to John, he calls John, he says, step up, come up here. I need to show you something. And he gives them a vision of the throne room of heaven. And remember last week in chapter 4, we saw the one enthroned, right? We saw this uh, interesting and really uh, uh, mysterious hierarchy of angels and, and, and this whole system going on of bowing and worshiping uh, the one seated on the throne. And so we saw the calling to worship that we're called to worship, that worship is the only way forward. And don't forget, there's a direct line between Revelation 4 and Revelation 2 and 3, that the real-life circumstances of the average Christian in Asia Minor, God said, you need to know about this. You need to know what's going on in heaven tomorrow when you go to work, tonight when you're in your care group, tomorrow, next week, as you deal with the situation in your family. You need to know this is what's going on in heaven. So last week we saw in chapter 4 the one enthroned and the song of worship, right, to him— And then in chapter 5, though, we have part 2 of this heavenly throne room scene. And things get even more intense as John is given this vision and Jesus gives it because we need it. So just remember as we get into the details here this morning that this is meant to be of immediate practical relevance to your life today. You need to know that this is true. Watch chapter 5 of Revelation verse 1. Then I saw, the next part of the vision, then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Okay, sealed with seven seals. Pause there. Scroll, okay, we've all, everybody's clear on what a scroll is. So I don't have a visual, you just have to work with me, okay? But scrolls often in ancient times, always, they would be sealed with a wax seal, right? And the seal would have the the stamp of authority of whoever had issued the the message, the scroll, the content, whatever. Uh, Sometimes, particularly in the Roman Empire, sometimes certain scrolls needed um, multiple witnesses to validate what was contained in the scroll. So sometimes you would actually have the requirement of seven witnesses, like seven seals. So just imagine one big scroll with writing on both sides, which shows there's a lot going on on it. That's basically as far as we can take that. But then you've got these seven seals on the scroll to, to mark the contents as true, accurate, and uh, certified, validated, right? And then what's in there? 
If it's a will, if it's a contract, if it's, you know, whatever it is, somebody has to have the authority to open the scrolls. It has to be addressed to them. They have to have the authority to open the scrolls and then to run with it, right? And to, to go to see what it says and then to act accordingly. So here we see the one on the throne, the father, has this scroll in his hands with these seven seals on it, signifying probably that it is his will for the universe, And when we think about God's will for the universe, we need to think about it specifically in terms of the redemption of sinners and the righting of wrongs. Because isn't that what we're longing for? To be at peace, to be at rest, and for what is wrong to be made right. And so here's the will of God written on a scroll. That's a biblical concept, by the way. If you look back to Psalm 139, you know, the the uh, ordained decrees of God are written in a book. It's also reflected in Daniel chapter 7. You know, it's, there's this concept. There's a book, there's a scroll, and on the scroll, the will of God is written. But who can get it done? Verse 2. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to take this and to make the will of God a reality. Who is worthy to do this? And when, when we see that language about who is worthy, again, don't forget that the first readers of Revelation living in the Roman Empire would have known exactly what was going on here. Because not long before this, Augustus had claimed he was worthy. Verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, or in New Jersey, was able to open the scroll or even look in it. No one in heaven, none of, the, none of those angelic beings, they're not worthy to open the scroll. No one on earth, no one under the earth, meaning somebody who's dead, no one dead or living was able to open the scroll or even look in it. Not even to actually get it done, but just like take a peek. Like, let's just see what's in there. No one is worthy. No one had the status, the right, the ability to do that. No one in creation. No created being. That's what you need to get out of verse 3. No created being. And just so we're really clear, to take the scroll and to open it is to make the will of God a reality. And so for, for creation. So here's the deal. If nobody is, is worthy to do that, then wrongs will be left wrong then that peace, that longing that we know we were created for, we won't experience. That angst will never get solved. So, in response, the Apostle John in verse 4, interacting with the vision, right? He says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Why does he weep? Well, his sorrow here is an acknowledgement of the hopelessness of the universe outside of God's intervention. Like, if God doesn't intervene because of sin being a reality, we don't have hope for those wrongs being made right. And so when John is weeping, he is weeping because he's in exile on Patmos. And he's ministering to churches who are facing varying levels of persecution. And he's seen, he's seen so much in the world that is wrong. And maybe this morning as you're here, you might think, you know what? I've experienced some of that. The brokenness of the world. 
Maybe you've experienced it in sickness or in death. Where those whom you love have, have succumbed to death. And you've mourned their loss. And you miss them desperately. Or maybe you face sickness. And there aren't easy answers to the problems that you have. And they're trying to figure it out and they can't figure it out. Or maybe they figured it out and there's no good news for you. It's just going to be a long, tough battle. Or maybe you've experienced the brokenness of the world in sin being committed against you. That people have wronged you. And you've experienced being let down, being betrayed. You've experienced being taken advantage of. Yeah. Or maybe you've experienced the brokenness of this world because you've sinned. And you've not only caused problems for yourself, but you've caused problems for others. And you've failed others and you've let them down. In the midst of all this, because John lives in the real world, he weeps because no one is worthy to open the scroll. And brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you this morning that it's really important that as we interact with the brokenness of the world, we don't gloss over it. We don't, we don't um, pretend it's not there and take a trip down to Orlando, right? Just go visit Disney and forget about your problems. Sometimes I feel like that's the American, like, that's like our number one go-to, right? But the fact is, as we see the brokenness of the world, we need to, we need to weep. Because it's not right. We need to acknowledge it for what it is. So John weeps. He weeps. But watch verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Remember, we talked about how uh, the 24 elders, they're either angels uh, who are ruling angels, or they might be uh, representatives of uh, saints from the Old and New Testament eras. It, it, that doesn't really make a huge difference to the point. The elders there, uh, one of them sees John crying about the, you know, weeping over the, the state of the universe and that there's no one worthy to take the scroll and to open it and to break the seals and to make it happen. And so he says, listen, don't, don't weep. Because look, he's like, you're not getting the whole picture. Look, it's not over. Look over here. Look. And then he points. And what does he point to? He points to the lion from the tribe of Judah. That language comes from Genesis 49. It's a reflection of God's promise to, uh, to, the, to Jacob's descendant Judah that from him would come a ruler who's going to, to fulfill the promises that God had made to the nation of uh, Abraham. Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. You also see here, though, he's not only called the Lion of Judah, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, he's also called the Root of David. That language comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And again, there's a, an assumption there of all the promises that God made to David, that God would give David a, an eternal reign, that, that some descendant of his would reign forever, and, and that the Lord would make those messianic promises come true through a descendant of David. And so with that Old Testament expectation right built in as as uh, john is experiencing it here the elder points to the second person of the trinity and he says look it's the lion from the tribe of judah the root of david and what has he done verse five he has conquered now listen don't don't 
don't run too fast past this. We were not long ago, we were in chapters two and three. And in chapters two and three, in the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus calls us to conquer. He says, conquer that temptation to compromise. Conquer the temptation to give into idolatry. Conquer the temptation to go with the flow and to not walk by faith. Conquer the temptation to do what's easy instead of what's right and what's honoring to God. He says, conquer that. Overcome that. But in the real world, we struggle to overcome. We struggle to conquer. We fail. That's why those seven letters are necessary. But here, as John is experiencing the throne room of heaven, and as he's weeping that no one's worthy, one of the elders says, don't weep. There's the lion from the tribe of Judah. There's the the root from Jesse. He has conquered. He overcame. He didn't give in. He won. He was victorious. And so here there's this, uh, this tone of confidence and of absolute hope, like a sure hope here. He says, no, we're okay, man. Stop crying. The lion from the tribe of Judah, he did it. Again, the root, of, the root from David, he did it. And he's conquered so that, verse 5, he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. What does this mean for us? Well, we have to understand at the bare basics this morning that the lion of Judah is worthy. The Lion of Judah is worthy. He's worthy to what? To hold the reins of the universe and to bring about the will of God. He's worthy to break the seals, which means he's worthy to bring about, yes, the judgment of the wicked, but also the vindication of the church. He's worthy to rescue sinners. He's worthy to sit and to judge the earth. He's worthy of that position because he is the Lion from the tribe of Judah. You know I love lions. I'll tell you what. You never, listen, if you see a lion that's well taken care of, not the, not the ones around here, but like real lions, you know, like legitimate lions. Like when you see a legitimate lion, like you're not thinking, who's going to take care of this guy? Right? Nobody wonders that. The lion brings to mind what? Royalty, power. He's the king of the jungle for a reason. I mean, that, that's the imagery. That's why the Messiah is, is called the lion from the tribe of Judah, because he will reign. The lion of Judah is worthy to hold the reins of the universe. And so while we don't gloss over brokenness, what we don't do is give in to despair. Right? We have to, we have to look, honestly, at the brokenness of our world. But when we look at it, we acknowledge, yes, man, that is not right. But the lion of Judah... The root of David, he is conquered. And so he's worthy to make that right. I wonder, do you need some encouragement this morning? That these Old Testament promises from Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11 and 2 Samuel 7, that that they're going to come true? Do you need some encouragement that Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is worthy? That he can rescue us not only from the penalty for our sin but from the presence of sin forever. That he is worthy to make wrongs right, to settle all debts, to actually administer true justice. The lion has conquered. That's what lions do. They conquer. And he has. And so the elder says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks, watch in verse 6. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. 
standing in the midst of the throne and the four creatures, four living creatures, and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. What? Let's not run too quickly past this. Because as the elder consoles John, you know, there he's weeping, he's in the throne room. Remember the layout, the thrones in the middle, 24 thrones around, right? The, the four living creatures around. You got the seven uh, spirits of God represented there in these, in these burning flames. And there's John and he's weeping because they're on the throne. The, the father holds the scroll and the seven seals and no one's worthy to open. He says, look, it's okay. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah is worthy. The root of David is worthy. But when John looks, he does not see a lion. He looks to the midst, to the center of the throne room, right there with the throne. And and what does he see? He sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb slaughtered. The lamb who was slain. The language here, it's interesting. The lamb who had been slaughtered and the effects of that slaughter go on. That's not a triumphant lion. Doesn't seem like. Of course, when he sees the lamb, the lamb like one slaughtered, right? The reality is all this other Old Testament imagery comes to mind. The Passover imagery. Where God had designed for his people to be protected from their own sin through the shed blood of a substitutionary sacrifice. And it was a lamb. So you remember back in Egypt, on that last night, they were, they were called to sacrifice that lamb, and they put the blood of that lamb on, on the, the mantle, the doorposts. And when they did that, the blood of the lamb protected them from the wrath of God for their sin. And so here, the question is, okay, the lion conquered. How does the lion conquer? Well, then he looks and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a slaughtered lamb. And where is the lamb? The lamb's in the midst of the throne. Just so we're clear, this is, um, this is my technical theological terminology. In the midst of the throne, that's God-only space. Okay? The midst of the throne is God-only space. You can look that up. That's technical. Okay? The God-only space. So here we have the second person of the Trinity. We have him present, the victorious lion, but actually the slaughtered lamb. And there he is standing in the midst of the throne and, and that's among the four living creatures and among the elders. He's also the center of attention. And what's up with the seven horns and the seven eyes? Okay, you won't, you're not going to see that. You might see that at some zoos, but it's not right. But anyway, <laughs> these seven horns and seven eyes, they represent something. Attributes of the, the slain lamb. The horns represent power. So, so one commentator said it's so great. This is not a sheepish lamb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not a sheepish lamb. Seven horns. Absolute power, omnipotence, you don't mess with this lamb. And seven eyes, the the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Remember, the seven spirits are either a reference to the Holy Spirit or possibly angels doing the will of God. But either way, because the seven spirits are sent out into all the earth, they are a reflection of the omniscience of God here, talking about the omniscience of the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is omniscient, and these seven eyes reflect that. He knows it all. It's whatever's going on on the earth, he knows what's going on. And again, sometimes in the brokenness of our world, we think, is God even paying attention? He is paying attention, very much so. And then watch what he does in verse 7. This omnipotent, omniscient slaughtered lamb. By the way, the slaughtered lamb is standing. Um, Slaughtered lambs don't stand. 
Something's going on, right? Verse 7, he went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It's a simple sentence. It's so short, verse 7, but don't miss it. They looked in all of creation. The angel cries out, who is worthy? And the answer came back, no one is worthy to do this in all of creation. And so God must do it. And so here, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the slaughtered lamb, he comes to the throne and he takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father because he is worthy. How does this work? It works because the lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. What do we mean by that? Well, the fact that the lamb is slain here says something. It is, it is a statement of the death of Jesus on our behalf. And it's just so interesting that here in the throne room of heaven, what God reveals to John, even, you might even think in some sense what, is, what needs to reverberate throughout eternity about Jesus. It's the fact that he was the great and final Passover lamb. And so he was the lamb who was slain for us. It's his blood that protects us from the wrath of God for our sin. It's his blood that makes the universe right. And so here, the lamb is worthy. Why? Because the lamb was slain. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. When the elder says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's conquered. You don't expect to see a bloody lamb. But as he sees the the lamb stained with blood, the statement is the lamb is conquered by his death on our behalf. So the lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. You'll remember back in the gospel of John in John chapter 1 when John the baptizer is baptizing and he's telling people that the Messiah is coming and I'm not worthy to tie his shoes and he's coming and then Jesus comes, right? And as Jesus comes, John looks and what does he say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the, the lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. And again, we bring all of that Old Testament uh, background that informs the expectation of a sacrifice that will take away the problem of sin and, and will make peace with God for sinners, and so, which is what the Passover points to. It's what the whole sacrificial system points to. And there, it all culminates in one final sacrifice offered for us, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. But there's more to it. He's, he's the substitutionary lamb. Which means when John sees the lamb slaughtered, he doesn't just see the lamb slaughtered, he sees the lamb who was slaughtered for him. Let's not run too quickly past it. It's important. Did you know this morning that Jesus died for you? He died in your place. And as much as temptation is to give in to what the culture is worshiping, which is, it, it is a temptation, it's, it's something we have to deal with, the fact is sometimes we can forget that we need rescue. We know they need rescue, but we need rescue. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, died in my place, in your place. He wasn't just the substitutionary Lamb, He was the atoning lamb, the lamb whose death satisfied the wrath of God and then restores sinners to a right relationship with God. 
they were working on English Bible translations 500 years ago, they coined this term atonement. It's a unique term they, co- they coined in English. This is actually true. Uh, if, what does atonement mean? You break it down to its parts. This, you can't always do this with words, but in this particular case, you can. At one meant. At one meant. Atonement. And I'm not sure it's a great translation necessarily all the time, but it gets the point across. That because of this death, the wrath of God has been satisfied, and I am now at one with God. That's what an atoning sacrifice does. Jesus was our atoning sacrifice. He makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God without fear of judgment or condemnation. It's not that we don't acknowledge our sin. It's that we can freely acknowledge our sin because he's paid for it. The price has been paid. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. He's our substitutionary lamb, our atoning lamb. He is the sacrificial lamb. He died to get it done. Now, why does this part matter? And maybe this is even the most prominent part. This matters because Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, not, not most, but some would be called to die for their faith. And Christians today, in the world today, not so much here, but in other places in the world, are called to die for their faith. And the question is, is that a loss? Is it a loss if I follow Jesus to the end and refuse to to compromise and I end up being imprisoned or I end up being executed? Is that a loss? And the answer is no, because the death of the lamb, the lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. That Jesus didn't lose when he went to the cross. He won when he went to the cross. It's counterintuitive. It's not what we expect. We expected it to be easy. We expected it to be uh, clean cut. We expected it not to cost anything maybe. And we find when we look to the Lamb, no. There he is standing. He is victorious, but he's standing like one slain. The Lamb's defeat is the Lion's victory. I just want to remind you this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're here today and you're not, I just want to encourage you that there is, there is real, permanent forgiveness available to you. But it is not available through your efforts. You can't do it. It's not available through the church doing something for you. We can't do it. It's available because the line of the tribe of Judah died for your sins and rose from the dead. It's available to you because the lion is the lamb. And what happens when you put your faith in Jesus? When you put your faith in Jesus, his death is applied to your account. So we're not saying that you're not broken. We're saying you're very broken. But the blood of the lamb was shed for you. And what do you receive when you put your faith in Jesus? You receive status, entrance into the kingdom, right relationship with God, lasting, permanent forgiveness, and a new calling, a calling to live a new life. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you, you will never find a better substitute. And you can't do it. When John sees the lamb, he sees the lamb who was victorious for him and for you and for me. What now? Well, now it's time to worship. Watch verse 8. When he took the scroll, so he took the scroll and the vision. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. More worship. But now they're not falling down before the one on the throne. They're falling down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, pause here. Verse 8. We need to redeem the harps, okay? So there's been way too many bad cartoons drawn of, uh, you know, of uh, 
You know, when, it, when, a, when Tom and Jerry would get into it and one of them would die and then their soul would go up and then they'd be playing this harp. Like, it just made it look so lame. Like, no, uh, here's the deal. Um, the, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they all fell down. They have a harp. Why do they have a harp? They have a harp because that is the primary instrument for worship from the Old Testament, okay? That, that's the idea. So this is, it's just all about worship. Don't get hung up on the instrument. It's about worship of the Lamb. And these bowls are filled with incense. What do they represent? He tells us they represent the prayers of the saints. So don't miss it. John is seeing visually displayed for him in this vision that the Lamb actually is the one who answers the prayers of the saints. What prayers? Well, the prayers because someone in our church was imprisoned for the gospel. The prayer is because so-and-so's husband was executed because of the gospel. The prayer is because somebody lost their job because of the gospel. The prayer is because somebody's sick, and it doesn't have anything to do with persecution. They're just sick. The prayer is because the emperor is going to die, and something weird is going to happen, and we don't know what our future is going to be. The prayer is because my kid's messed up, and I don't know what to do. The prayer is because I'm desperate to rescue my marriage, and I don't know what to do. Those prayers are brought to the Lamb. Why? Because the Lamb is the one who gets it done. He's the one who's worthy to take the scroll, to break the seals, and to execute the will of God for the universe, meeting the redemption of sinners and the judgment of wrongs. And so he's worthy of praise, he's worthy of worship, and he's able to answer prayers. Just a side note here this morning. Sometimes when we pray, we feel like nothing's happening. Your prayers are in this bowl, okay? Your prayers are in this bowl. And so, yes, God may not answer your prayer the way you want or in the timing that you want, but don't think he won't answer. Your prayers are here. What they do with the harps, verse 9, and they sang a new song. It's interesting. In the Old Testament, when you look, new songs are often the result of God granting his people a great victory. That's probably going on here. Just this recognition, wow, they sang a new song, this victory. What's the new song? You are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. I'm just, this is the verse for the t-shirts right? This is the one you want emblazoned on your heart, that you want to remember, that the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. Why? Because he was slaughtered for us, and by his death on our behalf, what did he do? He purchased people for God. That language, the verb, it's uh, reflected in Exodus 19, when uh, there's, again, just thinking about what did God do in the Exodus. He purchased his people He redeemed them. That's another translation. He redeemed them. What did the lamb do by his death on our behalf? He has bought us. He's purchased us. He's paid the debt. And he's been victorious. Which people for God, by the way? By his blood? How many? Which people? Well, people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a work. The lamb's work is not limited to any ethnic group, any socioeconomic status, any educational line, okay? There, there's no tribal delineation. It, in fact, it's the opposite, that there's an emphasis here on the fact that the lamb saves from every people group, 
from every language. And that is happening right now. Because, just so we're all clear, we don't know how God divides up all the languages and people groups. But whatever it is, he's saving out of each one. Okay? So he's doing that today, right now, in New Jersey, as people come to faith in Jesus. He's doing it in faraway places. Right? He's doing it, I'm thinking of Venezuela, right? Because I'm looking at Doug and Kara. But he's doing it in Venezuela right now. He's doing it in, in faraway places and tribes that we don't know about. We've got uh, folks coming, Lord willing, coming on as missionaries who are going to take it to an unreached people group. I mean, Indonesia, like, this is happening right now. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? What does this ha- What does it mean? It means Jesus is at work, doing what he does, redeeming, rescuing people by his blood. And they, they're singing about it. That's why he's worthy, because he is the one who fulfilled all the promises. 2 Samuel 7, yes. Isaiah 11, yes. Genesis 49, yes. Let's go back. Genesis 3, yes. That a descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. And so he's worshipped. What does he do with these people, by the way, once he's bought them? Right? What does he do with us? Verse 10, you're in here. Watch. Singing to the Lamb, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on earth. (laughs) This is so good. Jesus redeems us for what? To be a part of his kingdom. He's the authority, and we live under and and live out his authority. So our life, it's it's not ours anymore. It's his. We belong to him. And we are priests. What do priests do? They serve God. That's the primary job of a priest. And so we all are priests. We all are redeemed to serve God, to surrender our will for his will. We are now holy. We are set apart distinctly for him. So whatever your life stage, whatever your calling is, whatever your vocation, whatever level you are in school, you are meant to be, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are meant to be holy unto him. How can I do this in a way that puts God first? How do I do my job? How do I take this class? How do I function in this family in a way that puts God first? Where I surrender my will and I submit to his will. You're now in the kingdom. You're now a priest. Verse 10, and they will reign on the earth. See, in the first century, the the elephant in the room was, How can Christ succeed when Rome is so powerful? How can the church survive when Rome is so powerful? How can the church survive today when the United States is so powerful? When Hollywood is so powerful? When Wall Street is so powerful? Well, the fact is, because of the blood of the Lamb, God is redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And those people will reign forever with him. This is a promise. We've talked about it a few times in recent weeks. But that that promise is meant to give us hope as we face what might be temporarily defeat. We might lose in the short run. But make no mistake, when Christ returns, his church will reign with him. And that is meant to bolster our faith and endurance right now in the short run. Okay, so we're called to trust him and we look forward to that day when we will reign with him. Then it's just overwhelming. When you start to think about what Jesus has done for us in in rescuing sinners, 
and we think about the impact, the global work that he is doing, and we think about it chronologically, where it's going to end, and his reign being established on earth forever. When we look forward to that, we think about that, there's nothing left to do but sing his praise. Verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures, the four living creatures, and of the 24 elders, and their number, the whole total number, was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands and angelic roll call here. Everybody was there, right, for the worship service at 1010. They all showed up, right? And they said, verse 12, with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered. To what? To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. All the good stuff. All the stuff that, frankly, sometimes we chase because we want it. All the stuff that the culture wants, right? And, and we'll do a lot of things to get. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb to receive that. The power, the actual authority. Not, not stolen, not manipulated. There's no backroom scheming to get this. It's just his. That power. And the riches. You know, sometimes we get so stressed out over money. And it's like the financial burdens, the the concerns we have, and we just, it's like we're just so worried about it. But sometimes we forget that the riches are his. When you belong to Jesus, you're okay. Even if you don't have a lot of money, it's okay. And wisdom, an acknowledgement that he is wisdom, right? And strength, seven horns, right? No one's stronger. And honor, thinking highly of him, and glory, seeing his value, and blessing him, praising him for what he has done. All that stuff, it belongs to him. Worthy is the lamb for genuine, true worship. By the way, if you ever wonder, does the Bible really say that Jesus is God? God alone is worthy of worship. And that's what's happening right here. Jesus, in the midst of the throne, taking the scroll, being worshipped by the angels. He is worthy of worship. Revelation is interesting. It's one of the key books in the Bible for demonstrating to us the fact that Jesus is God and worthy of our praise. It doesn't stop with the angels, though. Okay, In the overflow room, verse 13, what happened? I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say... Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Well, which is it? Is it the one on the throne or is it the Lamb? Who's worthy of blessing and honor and glory and power? Yes, God the Father and God the Son. His work happening on earth through God the Spirit is worthy of this praise. Right now. Jesus says, John, you need to see this. Yes, there is a scroll. We're going to get familiar with the contents of the scroll as we go through Revelation. So yes, there is a scroll. Wrongs are going to be made right. We're going to set, it's going to be settled. But you just need to know, before we get anywhere else, that God is enthroned and only the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll. And so the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You get to the end of this passage, And you know what the resounding question is? If all the angels are worshiping, and everything in creation is worshiping, shouldn't I be worshiping? Because that's really the question. Continuation from chapter 4. But what about us? 
I mean, here, look at the lamb. He's worthy to open the seals to bring about God's will. Again, all the heavenly throne room is oriented, centered on the one seated on the throne and the lamb. He's right there in the middle with it. Are you oriented towards the lamb? Is your life centered around Jesus? And I mean in the particulars. How do I approach my marriage? How do I approach my schooling? How do I approach my vocation? How do I think about retirement? Right? How do I think about politics? Is it centered on the lamb? So the answer to every one of those questions is, Jesus is worthy. He died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. Okay, let's talk about our budget for the month. Okay, let's talk about this dating relationship. Okay, let's talk about how we're going to approach this issue with our kids. Let's talk about how we're going to think about the next election. He's the center of all of it. I wonder if he's the center of your life. I also like that... Uh, there's, no, there's no room for tears anymore. And we're kind of in this awkward in-between phase, right? Where we experience the brokenness in the world, and so we do cry and we weep, and we weep with those who weep, absolutely. But it's also different. Because we know the Lamb is worthy, it's not never-ending weeping. It's, it's weeping for a moment, but then it's joy for a lifetime. I mean, that's, that's the tension there, right? It's prayers answered. They're bringing him the bowl. It's the redemption of sinners. I just cannot emphasize to you, it's just hard with all the stuff that's going on in our lives. There is nothing more significant than the advancement of God's kingdom on this earth. That's why it's just so important. It's important for you personally, but it's important globally. And so, you know, something's going on like conflict in Ukraine, and what are we worried about? We're worried about the church. And we're saying, Lord, protect your church, advance the gospel. People die every day. They will die. His kingdom advances. Right? That's, it's a different perspective. Well, what about us? Did you know that you're in the kingdom? Did you know that you are a priest who's called to serve the lamb? Did you know that you will reign with the lamb one day? You sick of being a doormat? You won't be a doormat forever. Not because you've been working out, but because of the lamb. And so there's no need for us to despair. There's no need for permanent grief. And there's certainly no need to give in to the cultural hype when the culture says, he is worthy, she is worthy, this is worthy. We say, no, no, no. There's only one who's worthy to take the scroll. And it's not you and it's not me. And so we have motivation to fight temptation on a daily basis. Again, there's the reason this vision is given is because we need it today. We need it right now. And there's also motivation for giving thanks every day because the, the lamb isn't going anywhere. It's kind of cool because it's like we're waiting for the culmination of the work, but all the heavy lifting's been done. He was already slaughtered. The lamb's defeat is the lion's victory. Johnny Owen said it this way, he said, this passage calls us to continual giving praise and thanks to Jesus for his unspeakable love and our redemption. John Owen's like, you can't read this and not praise Jesus. You just can't. The, the one who's been redeemed, thinking of the work of the Lamb, it just got to be blown away by what he's done for us. At the end of the day, what we need to know, again, moving forward, is that the lion is the lamb. And so we have real, genuine hope. 
Spurgeon said it like this. I thought this was helpful. You and I cannot have too lofty thoughts of Jesus. You cannot think too highly of the Lamb. We err in not thinking enough of him. Where we're going to blow it, it's not going to be like, oh, I focused too much on Jesus. I was thinking too much of Jesus. I was too devoted to Jesus today. No, he says we err when we don't think of him. We err when we don't think of him as highly as we ought. Because he is worthy. So one day, like Caesar Augustus, you may have the opportunity to reflect on your life before your death. Should the Lord tarry. And maybe you would be tempted to sketch down a list of all your achievements. And maybe you might even ask your kids to see if you can get the town council to vote to have that inscribed permanently at the local shop right. right? So that every time somebody goes into shop, they can remember, look at how great they were. Maybe we, you might be inclined to that, maybe not. But you know what? What we need to do is remember this scene. And remember that for all our comings and goings, for all our failures and brokenness, our hope is rooted in the fact that the Lamb is worthy. Because He was slaughtered. And by His blood, He has purchased for God people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So the question is, will we let worship of Him be our legacy today? Would you pray with me and let's ask God to help us live like that? Lord, again, we pause this morning in light of this glorious picture, this transcendent vision of the heavenly throne room. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us passages like this, which are tethered to and anchored to our reality. We need, we need this vision. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. We praise you that you are the lion of Judah, the root of David, the promised seed of Eve who died for our sins and rose from the dead. We praise you that you are the slaughtered lamb and that by your blood, Lord, you have purchased us to be in your kingdom and to be your priests and one day to reign with you forever. But Lord, we confess today we struggle and so we ask for your help. Lord, help us to see through the cultural hype. To know that there is none worthy except you. And Lord, may our worship of you, may it impact the decisions that we make. Lord, I pray that we have practical problems that we're struggling with. Physical issues, financial issues, emotional problems. Lord, we're, they're, very, they're heavy many days. And we ask that you would help us to worship you. And to see that that all blessing, all honor, all glory, all riches, it all belongs to you. And you are worthy of being the center of our life. And you're worthy of us living in light of who you are. Lord, there's a surrender here involved in this worship. And so we ask that you would help us. Maybe we need to reevaluate some areas in our life. Lord, help us to do so with candid honesty, reflection. But Lord, also with confidence in your blood. And Lord, as we do experience and continue to experience the brokenness of, of this world, and as we, from time to time, we have to weep, Lord, we pray that you would comfort us by reminding us that you are worthy. Lord, help, our, help us to leave a legacy of worship of you, even now. And we ask these things, Lord Jesus, because you are the worthy lamb who was slain. Amen.